So do you do an interview for Dr. Basson? No, he doesn't want to talk to me. He doesn't want to talk to you. No. So what are you what is your work to do? So I my story is that I'm trying to tell the story about him. Oh, tell the story about him. Yes, and you can say what he used to do, but also his um, legacy. Yeah. Oh, his legacy. Yeah, yeah. This is Rasmus Bits. He is talking to residents of Durbanville, a suburban town on the outskirts of Cape Town. He is across the street from the private hospital Mediclinic. And the man who doesn't want to speak to Rasmus is Dr. Voter Basson, who has a private practice at Mediclinic across the road. But, but, but the, the, the thing is, this, is, are you against him or... Uh, 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 is it something good or is it something is bad? Is it good or is it something good or something I, bad about I him? Think, I think, well... No, you so, must speak the truth. Yeah, so I always try, so professionally, mm. my huh? work, I must tell the truth. And having done the research and interviewed a lot of people, mm. um, I must say that I am very critical about him. In this Sound Africa podcast, we have turned the tables on the doctor as Rasmus is trying to explain to the neighbors at Mediclinic. This episode of the Revisits series is an attempt at making sense of Voter Basson. Um, I think that he has done some very terrible things in his life. Yes, oh, in his okay. past uh, years. And he's never apologized for anything. You <laughs> oh, know? But now he's a good doctor. See, that's the question, right? That's the very good question. Is that enough? You know, is that fine? Yeah. No, the thing is, he saved my uncle's life, so I can't say anything bad about him. But, but, the, the thing is, but if he's bad, then, then you must tell him, hey, fuck your man, you must fucking get your fucking things right, man. Is that enough? Should we just move on? This is the question we are asking in this story. My name is Neo Rakajani. We call this episode Examining Dr. Death. And the story begins not in Durbanville, but in a park in Pretoria more than 11 years ago. Rasmus Bits tells the story. A stream runs through Magnolia Dell, a small park in Pretoria. It ends up in a pond surrounded by a green lawn. Normally, the park is visited by toddlers in prams and the domestic workers and parents who pushes them around. And then there's a statue of Peter Pan. And usually, police don't hide in the bushes. But on a summer morning in 1997, a bald and bearded white man in his 40s was meeting another man in the park. The bearded man had a plastic bag with him. I don't know if he looked over his shoulder, making sure that he wasn't being watched. But if he did, he didn't do a very good job. Because he didn't see a group of policemen from the Narcotics Bureau who was hiding in the bushes. But they saw him handing the plastic bag to the other man, who then placed something on the seat of a car 
nearby. And then the police jumped out. And while the Peter Pan statue remained stoic and still as usual, the bearded man started running. But he didn't get far. He fell into the stream and was arrested by the police. They confiscated the black bag, which held more than a thousand ecstasy tablets. And in the car, they found 60,000 rand in cash. The bearded and balded and now also dripping man was Walter Besson, also known as Dr. Death. I know how this played out from a book called Secrets and Lies. It's co-written by a woman named Chandra Gold. She's an expert in chemical and biological weapons. Basson earned his nickname Dr. Death when details of his work as the leader of Project Coast, a secret apartheid-era military program, was being exposed to the public. This story is my attempt at making sense of how Walter Basson ended up with a black plastic bag of party drugs in a park in Pretoria in 97. But also how he's never been punished and still is practicing medicine and instructing students in Durbanville today. On the surface, the answer to the second question is easy. Walter Basson was never sentenced for any crime. And because the case against him in the Health Professionals Council of South Africa is still ongoing, he's kept his medical license. But to me, this is not a satisfying answer. It's a technical, legal argument towards an ethical and moral question. Basson has never admitted any wrongdoing. He's not told the full story or apologized to the victims of the program he headed. In the public, we still have only a fragmented, blurry picture of what happened. The one man who knows everything is, of course, Basson himself. Hello? Hello, hello. Um, you are speaking to Rasmus Bitz. Uh, I'm a journalist who's uh, working on a uh, radio story. And I was wondering if uh, there would be any chance that you might be willing to give an interview. Um, I'm, I'm in my consulting rooms at this stage. I'm working with patients. If it's got any, anything to do with the Magnus Milan case, you can phone me this afternoon at six o'clock. All right. This is not about the Milan case, and I didn't call back at six, because Besson says he doesn't want to talk about the past. So instead, I decide to visit Chandra Gold, the chemical and biological weapons expert who wrote a book about him and Project Coast. Today, she lives in a village in the hills above the sea on the garden route. On the phone, she's told me that she's skeptical of the story that I'm doing. She thinks the story of Project Coast is bigger than Basson. It's five hours drive from my home in Cape Town, and on my way, I think about whether she's right. If focusing on Basson hides more than it reveals. Or maybe, as some people say, I should just let the past be the past and let Basson treat his patients. But in spite of what she thinks about my story, she welcomes me into her home and we sit down on the stoop outside her wooden house. Okay, so this is this place is Hookville. It's a little village um, in near Wilderness on the Garden Route. It, it seems on a day like this where it's like, you know, not too hot and you can sort of feel or smell the ocean. It's like just over there uh, down the hill and it's like, it seems like a really idyllic place. Is that also what it's like being here? 
Yeah, it really is in many ways. Um, of course, we have the same social issues and problems that most South African small towns do. It's a divided town. There is a, a township that's just out of sight around the corner where about um, 500 families live. But like any other place, you know, the rich, predominantly white people on the side of town are suspicious <laughs> and believe that everybody living on that side of town is a potential problem if they're not their domestic worker. Um, and so we have the kind of divide that was caused by apartheid that we certainly in the organization I work with are working quite hard to try and change. And um, what I found really interesting when we did speak on the phone recently was uh, basically the first thing you said when I explained what I was doing, you said that was a really bad idea. Uh, and and I think um, that's a great starting point for an interview or for a talk about it. But I don't start out by having my motives questioned. We'll get there later. First, Chandra Gold agrees to help me tell the short version of the long story that she has spent years investigating. The story of Basson and Project Coast. She first heard about Basson when he was arrested in 97. She heard that the police found trunk loads of documents in Basson's possession and that soon several intelligence services, the Office for Serious Economic Crimes and the Truth Commission were negotiating over access to the evidence. So that was on the one hand that happened and obviously I would have read about that in the newspapers. But I really became aware of the chemical and biological weapons program when one day a colleague of mine from Joburg said, I've come across an amnesty application that I'd like you to have a look at. At the time, Chandra Gohl herself was working as an investigator for the Truth Commission. And that was the commission set up to investigate the crimes of apartheid. The deal was put in very simple terms that in exchange for telling the truth, perpetrators of political crimes were granted amnesty. And the application that ended up on her table was from a scientist called Jan Lawrence, and Chandra Gold was tasked with this investigation. And it was through interviews with him and other scientists that started coming forward that a picture of Project Coast began to emerge. It seems as if the program had its inception after the 1976 uprising and the following police killings of hundreds of protesters. Because the South African government now wanted to look into new ways of controlling crowds. For example, other forms of tear gas and other chemicals. At the same time, South Africa was fighting a war in Angola. Here they were facing Cuban troops and Russian military advisors. And as the story goes, they wanted to be prepared for the use of chemical weapons. Meanwhile, Votabasson, a son of a policeman, had studied chemistry and medicine and entered the military. He'd been promoted to lieutenant colonel and in 1981 he was offered the job of heading up the program. Well, I think at that stage they were looking for somebody with the kind of um, expertise that he had and knowledge of chemistry and so on. Somebody who has a medical background or a scientific background um, and somebody who would be keen to do this. And Basson was keen to do it. Uh, he was ambitious. I think he saw this as a way of rising through the ranks as an ambitious person would look for opportunities. And of course, it was an exciting opportunity. There was a chance to travel across the world to gather information. So I think he was uh, also drawn to it for that reason. We know from trial records and interviews that Basson did travel the world. 
He infiltrated both leftist and right-wing groups in the US, visited European countries on both sides of the Iron Curtain. He said that he was never formally trained as a spy, but that he improvised and learned what he needed to know to develop what became Project Coast. The military had a policy of threading all paperwork about Project Coast every two years, which has made it hard to understand exactly what Basson was up to. We've pieced this together, um, and I think that there are many questions that remain certainly in my mind about about this program. Um, but to give you the simplified version, if you like, uh, in the end, there were two main facilities where that were doing investigations into chemical and biological weapons. The one was Rodeplot Research Laboratories, and that was uh, microbiologists. It was veterinarians, a lot of them veterinarians, um, who were doing animal experimentation. They had at Rodeplot all sorts of awful things like. This is what uh, Jan Lawrence told us about, was developing a um, gas chamber where they'd be able to subject baboons, restrained baboons, to substances and see how they would respond. Well, the baboon would be strapped down in a restraining chair and um, then they would be able to pipe in a chemical substance and see how the baboon responded, how quickly they died, um, how much was required in order to kill them, what happened while they died, all of this kind of thing. And one of the interesting things to have emerged from both the documentation and the testimony of scientists was that they seemed to be looking for substances that were untraceable, post-mortem, and that could be used to kill somebody without ever being able to be found out. The other main branch of Project Coast was another theoretically private company called Delta G Laboratories. Here, scientists were producing tear gas, researching how to respond to nerve gases and other substances. And in the end, also large quantities of street drugs, two street drugs in particular, um, methaquilone, also known as Mandrax, and ecstasy. Hello, hello, how are you guys? Can I walk in? How are you doing? Good, good. Who is this, the little ones here? This one is mine, and this one is my brother's. Uh, and what are their names? This one's their name, and this one is Amika. Okay, nice meeting you guys. And you are? Amira. And you? Pedro. And my name is Rasmus. So I'm um, a radio journalist working on a story about Dr. Voter Besson over here at the hospital across the road. Do you know him? You never heard about him? And you? No. Oh, you can ask that lady. She's working there by that hospital. To finance and run Project Coast in secret, literally hundreds of shelf companies had been set up, and it appears that Votabasson had license to do pretty much whatever he found necessary to build up the program. And while there's still a lot of that we don't know, there are things that Basson has admitted. Interviewed in the documentary film Anthrax Wars in 2009, he was asked whether it was true that him and his team had been working on a way to sterilize black women without them knowing it. The project has been called the Black Bomb, and this is what Basson answered. 
That was great, yeah. That was the most fun I've had in my life. Um, what happened is we had the objective to synthesize a certain protein that was in sperm for contraceptive purposes. The objective was that if you could immunize a woman against sperm, then you would make her infertile. One of the most scathing accusations against Besson was not part of Project Coast at all, but rather accusations from a man named Johan Theron, who claimed he'd been tasked with getting rid of Namibian prisoners of war. He came forth during the trial against Besson, saying that his plan was to put the prisoners into the back of a small airplane, strip them naked and throw them into the sea far above the Atlantic. But the first time he did this, the prisoner struggled and fought, and Theron had to strangle him with a cable tie. This he didn't want to repeat, so on the advice of his superior officer, he went to Besson for help and instructions. The horror of the story is that um, Theron alleges that they injected up to 200 people with um, tuberine and scoline, which are muscle relaxants, which which meant that when they were thrown out of the aircraft, they were paralyzed, probably begin suffocating, uh, but fully conscious and then thrown into the sea. Now, who those people are, we don't know. Um, and did that actually happen? We have um, Johannes Teron's testimony and we have log books from the flights that was presented in evidence in the court. But um, there was no... Uh, assistance coming from the Namibian authorities to assist in identifying who those might have been and if it actually took place. Why was that uh, thrown out of court? Because it was, right? The judge didn't believe Tehran. As you can hear, Basson did get his day in court. But not until 1999. Towards the end of apartheid, Basson was tasked with shutting down Project Coast. Because of the complicated structure with shelf companies across the world, not unlike an international crime syndicate, this wasn't a simple task. And it also wasn't the only thing Basson was doing. Well, on the one hand, he was doing things like consulting on a railway in Tripoli, in Libya. Um, on the other hand... Wait, how, how was he able to... Was he a railway engineer as well? No. <laughs> No, not at all. I don't know how that happened. Um, it was a it it was a really messy uh, process of trying to close down what was happening. It's difficult to make sense of exactly what Basson did in the nineties. There was concerns by, for example, the U.S. and the U.K. that he was selling secrets and expertise to countries like Libya and others, helping them develop capabilities to use chemical and biological weapons. So other countries put pressure on South Africa to rehire him, to try to rein him in. Like many other ex-operatives in the apartheid defense, it seems he was scrambling to bury past secrets and set himself up for a new life. And it was towards the end of this scramble that he fell and ended up in the stream in Magnolia Dell. But had he become a simple drug dealer trying to run from the police? Not according to Besson, who claimed he thought the narcotics cops were Israeli Mossad agents who were trying to kidnap him. And that's why he ran. 
Initially, though, he didn't manage to outrun the law, because in 1999, he had his first of many days in court. Three years in court, um, over a hundred witnesses for the prosecution, a highly complex trial, uh, 54, more than 54 charges against Basson, of which at least half were charges of fraud. And in the end, uh, Basson was found either acquitted or found not guilty on all charges. And why? Well, million dollar question, isn't it? Um, in part because s the prosecutors were very ambitious in bringing such a wide, huge number of, of charges against Basson. And quite soon after the trial started, a lot of their resources were pulled. Um, because there were other urgent things happening, not necessarily for any conspiratorial reasons to undermine the investigation. I mean, it certainly felt like that at the time, but it, it came down to these two prosecutors working with one investigator, really, you know, really difficult circumstances, masses and masses and masses of documentary evidence, a complicated trial. And it seemed to us who were watching the trial that from the beginning, the judge was more likely to believe the defense than the prosecution. He was very hostile to the prosecutors throughout um, because the prosecution was bringing forward witnesses that were tainted in many ways. There were people who were claiming to have done terrible things themselves and were implicating mm -hmm. voter Basson. And the only person who testified in Basson's defense was Basson himself. And so in the view of the judge, it was the word of a highly intelligent, professional medical doctor against the word of self-confessed hitman. <laughs> yeah, so that would be difficult. But also in this case, I mean, I think in any criminal case, the people who know what's going on are criminals. Like it's how would you have gotten respectable witnesses to secret warfare programs like how would that have worked well exactly looking at the judgment very carefully as we did after the trial it didn't feel like a very satisfying judgment um, the prosecutors tried to take it on appeal and and bring the charges some of the charges again but I think to some extent by that time uh, The impetus to continue with this had disappeared and the resources were needed elsewhere. Um, yeah. Hello. I'm uh, making a radio story about uh, one of the doctors over here at the medic clinic called Voter Besson. Voter Besson? Yeah, yeah. He basically was working for the army during apartheid and he was developing chemical and biological oh, weapons yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh, making drugs and things like that. Um, yeah, but everyone has their own opinion and stuff, man. You see, like, from my perspective, no, I can't judge, you understand? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I don't know the full story. See, I don't know the, the, the politics behind it. I don't know the chemistry or anything behind it, you see? And I don't know what his intentions was or were at that time. So His intentions were, he was a soldier, he said. He was there to fight a war. So then, then he wasn't there as a doctor? He was there as a doctor. But how can he be there as a doctor and as a soldier? I guess when you're there as a doctor, you have to um, help the, 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 the soldiers in need. But if you're there as a soldier, 
you have to do the duties and, and the responsibilities of a soldier. So in that case, if he then were there as a soldier, then I have no problem with it. Mm. Understand? Because actually, now as we speak, soldiers are killing. See, and then now, why are we judging him then as a soldier, but also as a medical practitioner? Do you understand? So it would seem that Dr. Death had the rest of his life ahead of him. And he decided to continue his medical career. But the past hadn't finished with him. It caught up with him again when a case was brought against him at the Health Professionals Council of South Africa. The case was initially started in the year 2000 and is still going on now in its 18th year. That's a lot of years to decide a case. It reminds me of ex-president Zuma and the way that the cases against him have dragged on for decades. And sure enough, there is actually a connection. So in all these hearings, for instance, Yapsel here, who was the lawyer who helped to get Jacob Zuma acquitted of rape, he and his attorney, Vainanda Kutsia, represents this is Mia Milan. She's the director and editor at Bikisisa, the Center for Health Journalism at the Mail and Guardian. And she's been following the case against Basson for years. They've always had very, very good strategies to counter the Health Professions Council, which has not been that hard, given that the Health Professions Council is known as a very ineffective body in South Africa. The, the strategy of, of Basson's legal team has always been to delay and that they have certainly succeeded in because the, the, the complaints were submitted in the year 2000. And then Voter Basson was only found guilty in December 2013. And he still hasn't been sentenced. And it's, it's possible that he'll never get sentenced because in January this year, he went to the high court accusing, there were three committing members and accusing two of them, Yanni Hichu and Eddie Mahlanga, of not being impartial because they belonged to organizations that that signed a petition against Voter Basson. So the court now needs to decide what's going to happen. Do they need to, to restart the hearing? Unlike me, Mia Milan has interviewed Basson. So I ask her what her impression is of the man who I can't understand. He, he responds to, to questions that you ask in a emotionless manner just before he was found guilty of professional misconduct and he was reading a book during the hearings and I asked him well what book were you reading you know why did you read a book during your hearing and he said well you know I already knew what was going on in hearings and I already knew all the arguments and I thought it's a much better use of my time if I read a sports book, a book on sports history, I'm really interested in it and it's just much better use of my time. Obviously many people perceived it as very, very arrogant and that is how many of his critics would describe him. The argument that I keep running into is that even if Basson might have a problematic past, now his skills are needed. And Mia Milan has heard the same argument. I spoke to the South African Heart Association in 2013. And that body at the time argued that Wouter Basson is one of the country's top cardiologists. And we only produce, at the time, we only produced six to ten cardiologists per year, which is a really small amount. And, and within that context, we should really keep Wouter Basson on. And then I spoke to an activist who had a very different argument. And his argument was, well, we 
might have a shortage of para-Olympic athletes in South Africa. And the solution to that, are we going to say that Oscar Pistorius um, should not be jailed because we really need top Paralympic athletes in the country? No, we're not going to say that. We're going to say you should rather train more athletes or we should train more cardiologists. We should fix the system. And I sort of agree with that argument. It's about the message it sends. It's an endorsement. If you take someone who has acted in that way, what message does it send for other doctors? I first wanted to do a story about Vota Basson in 2016, when I read that he was now tutoring medical students from Stellenbosch University. It was at the height of the Feast Must Fall protest, and it seemed like a mind-blowing paradox that a man like Basson was teaching at the same time as students across the country were protesting and demanding a free decolonial education. As it turned out later, students were voluntarily being instructed by Basson, and he was not hired by the university. But it had been going on for years. To me, it was a massive clash between generations and worldviews, and I was not the only one who saw it this way. It is just purely by chance that I overheard some of my senior colleagues when I was in second or third year that they were being tutored by him. Um, and I, I remember initially being quite like flabbergasted by it. And I was and I found it a bit strange, you know, think to myself, surely someone is going to say something about this eventually. This is Nicholas Wayne. He's a medical student at Stellenbosch University who happened to be the chairperson at the student council when it first became public knowledge that Basson was instructing some of the doctors of the next generation. Suddenly, journalists from everywhere wanted a comment. Yes, I can remember it was just the night before my hematology exam and I was sitting in the library actually and I was um, busy studying and I can remember just phone call after phone call after phone call just like and I really didn't know what was really cooking and then obviously then the whole thing blew up. It was it was a it was an interesting time. Now um, you are going into medicine partly because there is a need for professionals and you had the fortunate upbringing etc to get you to where you are now um, but you know if you actively try to remove one doctor isn't that making the whole situation worse yeah so it's it's a very fair argument i must uh, i must admit and i think the more doctors the merrier but currently in south africa that's not even really the problem the problem is the production of doctors and you know primary healthcare and that's really the issue and yes whilst we lack cardiologists specifically he does serve a small proportion in the private sector in the case of votabasson it's easy to get lost in the law and even the ethical discussions and while nicholas wayne believes that basson has broken the first rule of medicine namely do no harm he also reminds me of what's really at stake here. Something that's really concerning to me is the fact that we have such a terrible drug problem in the Cape. And it's kind of strange to me that one would defend a man who kind of, and we know it because he was found with drugs on, on person, that distributed or produced drugs. I mean, if you had to ask anybody else, would you like a drug dealer to at the same time be your doctor? It's kind of a weird scenario, you know, like it's kind of like you look at the person quite weirdly and say, why is this guy who produces drugs also now going to... And and I always find it really interesting that one of the drugs he was found 
production of and and on person was Mandrax, which is not a very common drug worldwide, but for some reason the Cape and the Cape Flats is very prevalent, and we need to ask ourselves. You can really put two pieces together. I mean, he he was a production, and it was a mass production of Mandrax, and then at the same time. Um, we have a Mandrax problem, and it's kind of a unique situation in Cape Town, specifically Mandrax. Um, and it kind of was out, like phased out in a lot of other countries in the 80s and 90s, like uh, early 90s. And for some reason, South Africa persisted and actually had a, quite a big spike in the like late 90s to early 2000s. And we constantly have patients that are still on Mandrax, and we need to ask, ask ourselves what was the common denominator? Why does South Africa, why does Cape Town in particular have this? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> because I don't know him. He's working across. He's a doctor. He's a doctor. Mm-hmm. But is he working here now? Gee. It's not far from here. Mm, it's just over the road, yeah. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know, man. So, based on all that you heard about him back then, and now he's working here, what do you think about that? As long as he didn't do what he does. Those years. Do you think that, um, should we just like, be okay with the past? I mean, those years was bad, now he's... What do you go worse then? <laughs> you don't know. Besides whatever role Basson has played in the drug crisis in South Africa, there are other direct victims of Project Coast that we know about. The most prominent is the Reverend Frank Shikane, who is an anti-apartheid activist and later became a member of government. Frank Shikane was attempted assassinated three times, a phone Frank Shikane who didn't want to go into the painful memories. My wife said to me, I will not travel with you anymore if you go around talking about this terrible stuff. That's why I've written it, so that I don't have to be made to repeat it. Those experiences were terrible, so they they were not nice experiences. I mean, I I survived. It's a miracle I'm alive today, uh, because those chemicals were meant to kill me. For Shikane, the problem is not Basson. It's a much bigger issue. The problem of the use of chemical weapons was a state-commissioned operation. Up to now, we don't know other people. I'm known because I survived, but we don't know how many people died. You are dealing with the issue of person, but I'm dealing with the issue as a systemic matter of state supported by major Western countries. While Frank Chicana is focused on the big picture and not Besson as a person, the doctor is one of the few that probably could give him the answers he's looking for. But Besson is not volunteering any information. He's running his practice in Durbanville. And he rents his rooms for Mediclinic, a successful private hospital headquartered in Stellenbosch. Of course, I wanted to ask them why they rent offices to Besson and why they would risk their reputation by being associated with a man with his history. Medic Clinic, Good morning. 
They didn't give me an interview, but a week after my inquiry, they responded in an email saying that Dr. Besson is an independent medical practitioner who consults from his own rooms where patients choose to visit him. I've spoken to some of these voluntary patients, amongst them a grandmother who thinks he's a great doctor with impeccable bedside manners. She doesn't want to be recorded for this story. She's afraid that she'll no longer be able to visit him as a patient. Maybe he'll refuse treating her or he will be forced to close his practice. I suppose she believes that we should let the past be the past and move on. Just like the students who volunteer to be instructed by Basson and the private club Kelvin Grove in Cape Town who hired him as a motivational speaker. And this brings me back to Chandra Gold, the researcher who didn't like the angle of my story. I ask her what she thinks about the people contributing to keeping Basson in the medical business. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not about to judge because I don't know who they are. Um, I certainly am not going to visit Dr. Basson if my heart starts failing and I wouldn't take my mom to him. But um, these are personal choices in the end. And I would have liked to have seen a situation where he acknowledged his involvement in this program, his role in the program and the potential harms that were caused. And I think that would have been incredibly helpful. But he's chosen not to confront or acknowledge that. And so I think it's a real pity. What she doesn't like about my angle is that she thinks focusing on Basson deflects attention from all the others who hasn't faced any consequences. I think that Basson has become a symbol, and even if there are others who are like him, his lack of accountability is important. What we agree on is that at the heart of the matter is an overwhelming sense in society that the truth has never come out. Justice has never been served. I think that's definitely one of the things that we're battling with because law and the courts and legal processes don't help us to deal with these kinds of things. And I think this is what we see um, both with South Africa's Truth Commission process and the process that followed, um, like, for example, the trial of Vota Basson, the sense of dissatisfaction that, you know, we haven't got justice here. You know, this hasn't been resolved is in part, I think, because we are looking to a legal system to give us that justice. And I'm not sure that a legal system can deliver the kind of justice that we're looking for, which is an acknowledgement that I caused harm by those who did, an apology, and then action towards restitution or restoration. Mm. And I don't think we know how to do that. We don't know what that looks like. I also don't know what that looks like, but I know what it doesn't look like. Taking responsibility for the past does not look like an invitation from a prestigious club to be a motivational speaker. And it doesn't look like a lucrative private medical practice. This story contains a long list of people who didn't want to be interviewed on the record. The patients, the students, the hospital who rents him his offices. And the last man who did not want to be interviewed is, of course, Besson himself. And I went back to our brief conversation and thought about what he'd said. Um, I'm, I'm in my consulting rooms at this stage. I'm working with patients. If it's got any, anything to do with the Magnus Milan case, you can phone me this afternoon at 6 o'clock, all right? 
Okay, okay. It has Thank nothing you. to do with the Milan case, okay, but then, uh, then, mm-hmm. then I've got nothing else to say. What, what, what did you want to speak to me about? Um, basically, I am working on a series of radio stories that is revisiting older stories and see basically how they have panned out and how the interpretation of the events have changed over time, you could say. Um, and one of them is the, the story about Project Coast and yourself. Oh, yeah. and Pro, 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 Project Coast is dead and, and buried and I'm also dead and buried. I have no interest in talking about it ever again in my life. Never thank again you. in your life. Never in my life, thank you. It's gone, it's finished, and, it's for Bay, okay? Mm-hmm. And and you're you. not interested in, um, in 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 talking about your legacy or things like that? Nothing like that at all. I know what my leg legacy is. I couldn't care what anybody else thinks about it, okay? Uh, what is thank it you. then? Uh, bye-bye, I'm busy. Bye. He's wrong. You can't decide your own legacy. It doesn't work that way. Basson's legacy will be defined by what we know about all he did and did not do and to what extent he chooses to take responsibility for his past. And of course Basson himself is only a small player in a society that daily struggles with truth not being told, responsibilities never taken. But you know who's also part of that society? I am, and you are, and everyone else is. You have been listening to a Sound Africa podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Rasmus Bits with help from Katinga Vaksata, Lars Overland, Candice Nolan, and me. My name is Neo Rakhajani. Sound Africa is supported by Open Society and Hindenburg Systems. Our media partner for the Revisit series is the Mail and Guardian. As always, if you like the story, share it with the people you like.